CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got a very, I think, important uh, and illuminating special edition of Political Rewind uh, today. We're going to be talking with the author of a book about how manufacturing jobs in this country dried up, the consequences of what that meant. And we'll introduce her in just a moment. But before we do, I want to give you a quick update on a news story that, of course, we've been following with our panels for the past week or so on the show. Um, And that's this effort by Democrats in the United States Senate to uh, get action on uh, two voting rights bills, which have now been combined into one measure. Um, Obviously, last week, uh, uh, Senator Sinema and Manchin said they would not do anything to overturn the 60-vote margin needed to pass uh, legislation, nor would they overturn the filibuster that would allow the voting rights bills to pass on a majority uh, vote, which seemed to shut down President Biden's, uh, you know, very, very strong and, you know, fist-pounding speech in Atlanta last week in which he talked about the fact these bills had to be passed. Um, But today, um, the Senate has taken advantage of a legislative maneuver to open the door for uh, a debate on the two voting rights bills, and uh, Majority Leader Schumer says that debate will take place. They can do it without uh, a six, the 60 votes traditionally or typically needed to do that. So we're going to watch how that debate unfolds. Nevertheless, when the debate ends, Republicans will still be able to block the bill uh, because the vote itself would require uh, 60 senators to join in passing the legislation. So we'll talk about it on the show for the rest of this week, certainly, and uh, keep track of what's happening uh, there. Both Senators Warnock and Senator Ossoff are deeply involved in efforts to get these bills passed and will be part of our conversation uh, throughout the next few days. But let's get to a really uh, important uh, show, I think, today. And and I'm going to introduce, I want to introduce Ferris Stockman in just a moment. But before I do, I want to just share with you a very quick personal experience. Most of you know I grew up in Chicago. And um, my family, from the time I was young, used to drive to New York City with some regularity. We'd get on Interstate 90 and drive east across the country. And one of the most thrilling parts of that drive for me, whether it was going there or coming back, was driving through Gary, Indiana, and seeing the belching fires and smoke from the smokestacks of the steel mills, uh, lighting up the horizon. It was, it was thrilling. It was an example of American power of manufacturing at its best. And of course, uh, there came a time when I'd make that drive as an older uh, Chicagoan when there were no steel mills active at all. They had dried up. They had gone away. Gary, Indiana was a town that was dying. And that happened uh, long ago. Um, We saw the same thing happen in Pittsburgh 
with the steel mills. Well, the steel mills shut down a long, long time ago, but manufacturing jobs subsequently in the decades of the 21st century have disappeared left and right. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the consequences of Americans who lost their jobs and what happened to them moving forward. It's one thing to talk about this from the 50,000-foot level and to say that millions of Americans in manufacturing uh, with unskilled jobs were put out of work when plants moved overseas. But what Ferris Stockman has done in her book, American Made, is to go in and give us a macro view of three workers who worked at the Rexnord ball bearing plant in Indianapolis, Indiana, Shannon, Wally, and John. And we're going to talk about their lives and what happened to them as they went through this traumatic experience. All that said, Ferris Stockman, thank you so much for being here for our conversation today. Thanks for having me. Um, so I want to start, if you don't mind, with a, a, a few personal items that you talk about in your book. You're, you're very good in this book about uh, relating your own life to the lives of the workers who you focused on. And, and if, if we can, I want to start with the fact that you talk about the experience you had when you were in college and, uh, and the job you took on to uh, help support your college studies. You worked in a dining hall, right? Yeah, I worked two or three nights a week in a graduate student dining hall, mooning spaghetti and spaghetti sauce onto people's plates. Yep. And you, and it occurred to you one day that for you, what, this was a temporary, talk about what happened when you suddenly realized what your life looked like compared to the full-time workers around you. Well, back when I was in college, uh, you know, I, I went to an Ivy League school. I felt I considered myself, it, you know, I felt poor to be there having to work in the dining hall for extra pay. And you're, you're always comparing yourself to people around you. So I'm comparing myself to, you know, kids who didn't have to work in a dining hall, kids who had computers in their, in their rooms. And we had, I had to go and you know, use a shared computer to write a, write a paper. Um, but in the process of reporting this book, I came to realize the educational privilege that I had to get that, that education and to, to who should I really be comparing myself to? I, through the course of this book, I, I learned that only one-third of American adults have a college degree, have a BA. Two-thirds of American adults do not have a BA. They either have an associate's degree or, or, or they took a couple college classes and then left school, or they never, even, they never went beyond high school. And so that is the real uh, fault line to me that we never talk about. And we never talk about it because we live in a society that likes to say that, oh, we're a meritocracy and, you know, the, the ones who are on top, the ones who make all the decisions are there because they're the... You know, they went to school. They're experts. But re the reality is that people who have highly educated people uh, live in a different economic universe than those who didn't go beyond high school. And, and yet we are the few and they are the many. And at most a lot of people don't even a lot of people who make these decisions for the country 
don't really have anyone in their social circle that didn't graduate high school or that didn't graduate college even. That doesn't, you know, people don't even have an advanced degree, right? And yet they're a tiny minority. So that's what I really, that was one of the big takeaways I got when I was researching this book. Well, and when you, in your dining hall experience, you, you say that you were, you, there was a woman who you uh, uh, knew pretty well, full-timer. You said, I did not understand at the time that a bright young, yet unspoken line divided us. We undergraduates would be gone in a few years, on our way to becoming ambassadors, perhaps, or tenured professors or journalists. She'd remain in her job if she was lucky. Another cafeteria supervisor lost her job abruptly after a decade of service for sneaking a box of cereal out in her bag, a crime that students committed all the time. You you tell us that very early in the book, and you set up, I think, um, you open the door for us to willingly examine people whose lives are lived differently, certainly than you and I lived. I had a summer job in college, working overnight, the overnight shift, 9 to 5.30 in the morning, filling grocery orders for the biggest supermarket chain in Chicago. And it was a very tough, demanding, physical job, moving soup cases and heavy uh, uh, grocery supplies onto pallets. Um, and I do remember an experience like yours. One night I was sitting talking to one of my worker friends, an older guy, and he, he said what, to me what you basically realized. He said, just don't give up school. I will be working here next year when you're back in college, sitting in your dorm, yeah. studying for an exam. Think about me. And that was really kind of a remarkable thing for him to have said to me. And it reminded me yeah. a lot of your experience. Yeah, for sure. So for sure. Tell us, let's talk, let's talk about Rexnord. Um, in Indianapolis. Um, tell us what Rexnord, we know it's a ball bearings manufacturing plant and really one of the, one of the finest in the world at the, in, in the days that it was uh, firing on all cylinders, right? Talk about it a bit. Yeah, so this plant was built in 1959 by a company called Linkbelt, which was really famous. Uh, Linkbelt had its roots from, uh, it, was, it was an old, old uh, company that got started by a person who invented a detachable chain so that farmers could could fix their uh, machines in the field by themselves instead of having to take it into a shop. And this was sort of like, you know, the late 1800s, basically, when Link Belt was formed. And so it was, you know, a lot, I was, it was kind of fun to learn how many of the, of the sort of name brand machine companies around today date back from this period of invention. Um, but by, you know, so, so, you know, by the 60s, this is, the golden age of American manufacturing. Link Belt has uh, factories all over the country and it sells its products all over the world. And, um, you know, I didn't even know what a bearing was when I started this book, but ball bearings, roller bearings, they're, they're a little gadget that's in every machine that moves has one and it, and it, it, it design, it basically reduces friction so that a conveyor belt or a crane or a wheat combine can move without, burning up from the from the friction and so um yeah they built this plant and it was um 
a big employer. Link Belt was a very famous company. If you were a blue-collar worker in Indianapolis, you knew that you would be taken care of. If you got a job at Link Belt, you knew that they would uh, go through several steps to it before they fired you. You would, you would, if you were an alcoholic, they would get you treatment. If you know they had glee clubs and sports teams, they went bowling together. It was a real sense of camaraderie. They had a union hall that. Um, uh, represented not just that factory, but a bunch of other factories. And so it was a real, it was a tribe. It was a real, um, uh, it was a supportive community. If you were lucky enough to get in there, it wasn't easy to get a job there. You had to know somebody essentially to get a job there. And so, um, you know, it was really interesting for me to, to talk to factory workers who had one of the last best jobs that you could get if you didn't, if you if you hadn't gone behind beyond high school, so these these uh, guys and gals were earning twenty five dollars an hour, yeah. in some cases with a GED. So um, I I realized in my enthusiasm about getting to talk to you, I didn't introduce you quite as properly as I should. And one of the things I should say, of course, is that you are a member of the editorial board of the New York Times. Um, but in 2017, uh, working at the New York Times, you were assigned to travel to Indianapolis and do a story uh, about Rex Nord. We should also say, although I said it at the very beginning of the show, during your many years at the Boston Globe, you won a Pulitzer Prize for your reporting on what the uh, busing movement in Boston, the tumultuous uh, busing uh, of students in Boston with the outcomes it uh, uh, led to for many students. Okay, that said, you went out to fulfill an assignment to uh, go, go see Rex Nord. What was the assignment? What were you uh, tasked with doing? Well, let me actually start with election night of 2016, because that's kind of the, okay. the, uh, the, the roots of this book go back to that, which is, um, so I spent it on, on Wellesley's campus, which was Hillary Clinton's alma mater, and I was assigned the task of gathering string for what was to be a, a, an historic night of the election of our first female president. And so I'm gathering string all day uh, for this story. We had somebody in her hometown. We had somebody at the, in New York at the Javits Center where she was expected to give her victory speech. And, you know, the, obviously the night went, <laughs> went how it went. And uh, people were stunned. They were shocked. And, um, and it was the experiences of that night that uh, led many, many people to conclude that, um, you know, we didn't, there was something that uh, people were missing about what was going on in the country. Uh, the fact that so few uh, of these big media personalities saw what was coming, and um, it was it was extraordinary. So, uh, in the weeks following that, you know, I, I I'm from the Rust Belt. I grew up in Michigan, and I started asking people, why Donald Trump? Why this guy? This is a man who had never served even one single day in government at any level. And he was just elected president of the United States. Why this guy? And I kept hearing, he's going to save my job. He's going to save my factory. He's going to bring the factories back. And, you know, at, at the time, I had totally missed 
the stick that he did at his rallies where he would say, is there anyone here from Carrier? And Carrier was a, an Indiana, Indianapolis plant that um, was moving to Mexico. They made air conditioners and furnaces. And the carrier workers in the audience would raise their hands and he'd say, how many years of seniority did you have there? And they'd say like 10 years, you know, 20 years, they'd start calling out their years of seniority. He would say, I'm never going to eat another Oreo cookie. Why? Because Oreo, the parent company that made Oreos was moving out of Chicago to Mexico. So there were all of these, you know, he basically um, found this, this, uh, this source of, of valid economic grievance that Democrats were, had been talking about for years, but that Hillary Clinton was not a credible person to talk about it. Why? Because her husband signed NAFTA. And so after I started sort of digging in, I started realizing how much anger, literal fury there was um, over NAFTA. In, in some of these places. And so anyway, I, I started to think, uh, I wanted to sort of see like, what does it feel like to have your job move away and be told that you're gonna be unemployed because those people over there are gonna do it a lot cheaper than you. Um, so I looked for a place and I chose, uh, actually I, I initially looked at a factory in Philadelphia and then I decided to follow Rex Nord in Indianapolis because Trump tweeted about this factory. And he, he said, no more, you know, Rex Nord is viciously firing these 300 workers, no more. And, you know, what, what's going to happen there? He, he, so he sort of had this very public feud with the, with the union leader of that, of that plant um, over whether he was exaggerating his ability to save jobs and and that sort of thing and so anyway i it was it was a ripe topic and i went i, I started flying to indianapolis and i i followed them as the factory closed down around them for about seven months and then i decided to follow them for all four years pretty much in the trump administration yeah i have to say that I, you know, obviously there are a lot of journalists, uh, political scientists and others who have tried to um, explain to get to the bottom of the Trump phenomenon in 2016 and still to this day. And it's been a mystery. I have to say, because you focus on three individuals, I got a better sense of this than I've ever had before of just what it was that inflamed uh, workers to want to vote for Donald Trump. And I think that's one of the great successes of your book, and we'll talk more about that as we move forward. I do want to tell you, our senior producer, Natalie Mendenhall, a graduate of Wellesley, was there on that night in 2017 wow. or 2016 as well so you, <laughs> and went through uh, the same experience you did. You saw, you saw what I saw. I mean, people were melting down. They actually brought in the, the cardboard cutouts of Donald Trump. They, like, brought those into the press room because people were starting to attack the cutouts. All right. All right. Let's talk about the people you focus on. Um, and if you don't mind, we'll take them one at a time. There, uh, one is a woman, a white woman. One is a white man. And the third is an African-American man. They're all in their 40s, as I recall. Yeah. And they're all yeah. they've all been working uh, at uh, Rex Nord. 
Uh, tell us a little bit about the story of Shannon. Yeah, so Shannon was a single mom uh, who had worked her way up from a janitor at this plant all the way up to a heat treat operator, which was one of the most dangerous and highly skilled positions on the factory floor. She made a lot of money on overtime. Um, and her story was fascinating because she had been an abused woman. She had been uh, with a very abusive guy, and she knew that in order to escape him, she had to get a job. And so she went and begged her uncle to get her on at Rexnord, which was Link Belt at the time, and, and, and he got her that job. And so you can sort of see what that job meant to her when you go back and look at, like, it meant freedom from uh, an abusive guy. And that job gave her not only the money, but the confidence to, um, to leave him and strike out on her own and be a breadwinner. And when she told me her story of how she learned the job of being a heat treat operator, it was also extraordinary. She talked about how hard they tried to get her fired because she was the first woman ever to do that job. They, you know, the first uh, night or day she was training, they, they told her, like, you know, push this button, turn this valve, open this door. She does it, and boom, fireball leaps out. And she screams, and they are all laughing. And it was like, uh, heat treat is not for a woman, one of them said. So it was just, you know, you could say it's hazing. You could say it's uh, major uh, gender discrimination. But, you know, she had been abused her whole life uh, one way or another. Um, she had been uh, sexually abused by her stepfather when she was a kid. And then, you know, like it's just her whole life was a litany of, of, of various forms of, of this. And so, you know, she's like, oh, hell no, you're not chasing me from this job. I make $25 an hour here. Like I started off making seven as a, as a janitor. You're not letting, you're not chasing me away. So, you know, I, I just came to see her story as this sort of, she had a lot of uh, spunk and she did anything she could to fit in, whether it was, you know, laughing about some, you know, lewd joke or, um, uh, or flattering, uh, fl flattering the oldest man in the department who knew everything about all the furnaces and ultimately took her under his wing and, and taught her everything. And so I really, the story of Shannon, she was the first character I really went deep on because I, I wrote a, a piece in the New York Times about her after following her for seven months and really watching her agonize over whether she should train the Mexican guy who was replacing her or whether she should refuse because the union didn't want them to train. The union thought if no, none of us train the Mexicans, then we won't, they can't move. And yeah, so that becomes this, a, go ahead, yeah. finish that thought. Oh, so, so I just really watched her agonize over that and came to really see like, you know, who she was as a person through that, through that experience. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I do think that step, 
that we'll talk about a bit later about, you know, the heartbreak of having to train the Mexican replacements you go into in, in great detail. And it is heartbreaking. But, but I do want to point out that you say in the book that uh, you came to see Shannon as a blue-collar feminist in the tradition of Dolly Parton, which I thought was wonderful. But here's another thing you, you accomplish with your book. You, you take the threads of the personal stories of these three and are able to extend them to much larger sociological uh, phenomena that we're dealing with right now. In Shannon's case, it's single women in the workplace, and you go into some depth yeah. talking about what it's like to be a single woman woman in the workplace and how difficult it is to take that on. T- tell us a little about that. Well, yeah. I mean, so she's juggling child care. Her kids were grown pretty much almost by this point. Her daughter was in, a senior in high school wanting to go to college, and her son had had a, a, a disabled granddaughter that um, – that she was sort of largely responsible for caring for. And so I really had to um, understand that. Sorry, just trying to plug in my computer here so it doesn't die. Um, I really had to understand um, that Shannon faced some very um, specific challenges that her male counterparts didn't. Like, um, I also came to see that for women like Shannon, the feminist movement wasn't about, like, Hillary Clinton becoming president. It was about being able to operate a machine on the factory floor, being able to get paid overtime and and get seniority. Um, and it was a totally different um, – it was kind of a different experience than the, the, the feminist conversations that, that, you know, lean in and how do you negotiate salaries like a man. Well, you know, uh, for these blue-collar women, if you're in a union job, you know, it's just like seniority. Do you get, do you get to pick? Do you, do you get to write your name on the bid sheet and, and, and get the job that you deserve? Um, and so it was, a very, it was very eye-opening to me. Um, Wally is uh, the second of the three people you introduce us to. Wally's an African-American uh, man whose family's from uh, rural Georgia. Uh, and by the way, and you tell us that Wally is filled with Wallyisms, which are kind of <laughs> folk wisdom that he's gained from yeah. his experiences in Georgia. What's an example of a Wallyism? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Um, uh he he had so many funny sayings. Um, yeah, uh, uh, but, yeah. Uh, but he Wally had you you point out to us that Wally, another twenty five dollar an hour worker, which was a fortunate uh, uh, position to have. Um, you point out to us that um, well into the twentieth century. Um, black men were largely barred from operating machines. And that yeah. the jobs they could find were as ditch diggers, shoe shiners, waiters, chauffeurs, um, and that the largest employer of black men in the 20th century was the Pullman Company, uh, which hired former slaves to cater to the well to the needs of wealthy passengers. So that's a back really again an environment out of which Wally's story can be told. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it was one of the heartbreaking facts that I learned um, from historians was that enslaved men actually had more skills in many cases than their um, descendants because their if they knew if they were a master carpenter, then that benefited their master, right? That benefited their owner. But after uh, after emancipation. Uh, they're just another laborer out there who's competing with white men for jobs. And in the South, it was a little different. Uh, there were there were still a lot of people with these, this knowledge, but in the North, you there was so much discrimination when it came to getting a union job at a factory that you know they were working in some of these mills. Um, I found evidence of black men working at Linkbelt. But it was always the worst jobs, the, the, the lowest jobs, the most menial jobs. And um, Lolly got his job uh, because of his uncle as well, who moved up um, and got a job at Link Belt in the 60s. Um, but it, it was like an NAAC pressure campaign that, that caused Lolly's uncle to be able to get that job. And he had to pass a million tests. They initially told him there's no job for you, all of this stuff. And finally, they hire him. And what is what do they assign him to do? Be a janitor. And Wally's yeah. uncle and, and, you know, early 60s, Wally's uncle goes to the union and says, I've been to technical school. Do you think I can't operate a machine? And the union steward looks at him and says, we know you can operate a machine. Of course you can. It's just that there's only so many jobs in this building. And if you get one, that means that's one less job for my son or his nephew. And so it was just, it's one less job for one of us. And so it was just a real eye-opener to see that jobs and how they're divvied up and how they're uh, handed out, essentially, it, it, it's, it's tribal uh, in a lot of ways. And so for for black people like Wally's family, the Civil Rights Act, when that passed, that was the day that Wally's uncle went and said, I want to operate a machine. And that's what civil rights was to him, being able to get a grinder, to be able to be on the floor. He uh, earned twice as much money throughout his life because of that act that allowed him to go and, um, and operate a grinder. Um, I got to get to a break, but I, we, we want to point out that for a while, Wally, the only way Wally could earn a living was dealing drugs. He was arrested for that. He spent time, did time for it. And you say at one point in the book, the biggest lesson I took from Wally's story was how thin and fickle the line between citizen and criminal can be and how frequently it has to do with how people earn their daily bread. Another really uh, 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 fascinating observation from you. Let's do this. We got to get to a break. We'll come back. We'll meet John, who is the union organizer of the three of them. But then we're going to have to talk about the fact that despite the differences that separated them and how they ended up at Rexnord, they all ended up in the same boat, out of work because of outsourcing. We'll talk about that and more with Ferris Stockman after these messages. My guest on today's Political Rewind is Farrah Stockman, New York Times journalist whose book, American Made, is the story of how 
the collapse of manufacturing jobs in the United States made a deep, deep impact on who we are as a country and on the individuals that she documents in her uh, book, what it did uh, to their lives. There's so much in this book that we could get to, Farah, um, but we're going to try to focus uh, with the time we have left and, and tell a big part of what happened to these three. The third character, for real person you introduce us to, is John, who you point out hailed from a long line of union men. And in John's case, he really has a union background. His grandfather, great-grandfather, members of the United Mine Workers Union, which fought some of the most ferocious battles with uh, with uh, mine companies uh, in the early part of the late 18th, 19th century and early part of the 20th century. So he was a dyed-in-the-wool union guy, right? Absolutely. And he was the vice president of the union. And so when the when Rex Norton announced this plant is going to close, John goes around the whole plant saying, nobody train. Don't train. If you train uh, uh, one of your replacements, it's, you're no better than a scab. And so it was a, you know, I, I was very interested to follow John. This was actually his second plant closing that he'd gone through. Yeah. He, Ten years earlier, he'd gone bankrupt after a different plant he worked at actually moved to Alabama. So it's not just moving overseas, it's moving to places that didn't have unions. Um, he, uh, he became vice president of the union. Um, he, he fought to get that job because he felt he was more fierce in his defense of the workers at Rexnord, and that also proved to be the case when uh, the company wanted them to train the Mexican workers who would take over these jobs. Um, and and he rallied people around him, although he still, to some extent, was an outlier in some of his uh, most militant positions with the company, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, the other union leaders were, were kind of, um, they'd been there a really long time, and they sort of engaged in a lot of horse trading with the bosses. Um, so, yeah, there was a sense of a, of a clique uh, that was running things, and John was an outsider. Uh, for sure. Um, there's a fascinating story that you tell about John later in the book. Um, you get to know him pretty well. Um, but but early in the book, you say that you and Shannon had things in common. You were both mothers. Wally and you were both descendants of slaves. But John's identity was harder for you to grasp because he's the first person you'd ever known who described himself as a hillbilly, which he thought of as a badge of honor and a slur. Um, and he said, uh, you have to have a little hillbilly in you to understand it. He said that one of his favorite movies was, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which makes uh, sense. But later in the book, you realize that you've gone to his house and he has a Confederate flag in his garage, which launches the two of you into a deep, deep conversation about race, the meaning of that flag to John and to you. Um, it's, it's one of the really interesting, it's, it's a little, aside from the fact that the plant closed, but it's a fascinating story, Farah. Yeah, it was it was one of it was definitely the hardest chapter to write um, because on the one hand, John, being a union guy, he works side by side with black people in every factory he's ever worked in. He fights for their jobs um, because they are his union brothers and sisters. And even at the next job he gets, 
Uh, he's working at a hospital. Um, he, his best friend there is a, a, a black guy who, is, who started around the same time as him, and they go motorcycle riding together. They go squirrel hunting together. And so, like, it was really John was a guy who had far more contacts and real meaningful relationships with black people than most of the white guys that I know here in Boston who seem liberal. And yet this Confederate flag just floored me. Like, what is that? Why is that there? Uh, yeah. Um, so let's talk about uh, what happens when Rex Nord announces the plant is going to shut down. It sends all three of your characters, like the rest of the people in the plant, just spinning out of orbit. The, you open the book but with a conversation among some of the workers, asking each other, what do you want to do next? And the reality is, um, although they offer some kind of vague ideas, as they're talking about the plant that hasn't yet closed, nobody really knows what they're going to do next, including your three characters. Well, Wally does. Wally wants to have Wally, a barbecue Wally place. <laughs> yeah, Wally did. Wally had a dream. Yeah, Wally had a dream. He wanted to open a barbecue place. And he and I knew that's one of the reasons I followed him, because I wanted to see if he actually did it. He was a, he was a guy, a, a go-getter, who had, who had this entrepreneurial dream and this belief that he could do it. But um, Shannon, I think is out of work for like a year and a half, although there's a fascinating story about what happens to her, but it's a year and a half before she finally uh, gets work again. John feels yeah. like his whole family is living under a curse, and for a while he's not sure how he is going to break that curse. He does end up finding uh, work he's, uh, it, it, in a hospital, which he realizes is a much smarter place for him to be than in, say, a manufacturing plant, right? Yeah, there's this moment where he's deciding, do I get another, do I become a steel worker again? Because he was, there was a chance that he could get on at a, at a plant that would have made him a steel worker again and he would have gotten, you know, a similar salary. Um, but uh, he decides, no, I'm not going to go through this again. I'm not going to, I'm not going to. Uh, I, I want to be, he, he's looking at the wealthy doctors walking through the halls and he said, I want to be in their boat, whatever, whatever, you know, I don't see somebody coming in from the outside and getting rid of this hospital. Uh, I don't see the wealthy doctors letting that happen. So I want to be with them. And of course he's at the hospital when COVID hits, as if you yeah. haven't already covered enough ground in your oh book, as you're yeah. trying to come to the end of the book, suddenly the coronavirus shuts everything down. Yes. Right, right, right. I had written a whole book and turned an entire draft, <laughs> and then my, my publisher was like, you got to add COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about something I never thought about as deeply as you made me do in this book in talking about the impact of NAFTA and the World Trade Agreement. And I think that's one of the most interesting things we learn about the impact that those agreements had on American workers. We'll do that uh, when we come back with Ferris Stockman.
I'm talking to New York Times journalist Ferris Stockman, whose book American Made takes a very deep, deep look at what happened when much of the American manufacturing economy collapsed, what it meant to the country, and what it meant certainly to the three people uh, who worked at the ball bearing company that shut down and moved to Mexico. It's, it's, I really encourage you to take a look at her uh, book when you have a chance. Um, so, Farah, I spent a lot of time covering the Clinton administration um, and uh, certainly covered Clinton's uh, uh, NAFTA push. Uh, he believed in it wholeheartedly. So did, did obviously, a lot of American uh, political leaders. And for many years, it struck me that NAFTA was, of course, an important way for us to become part of a global economy. And, and that's, there's some truth to that. But Farah, your book really, really makes clear how the initial NAFTA agreement also devastated so much of the manufacturing uh, economy here, the jobs here, and put the workers that you write about in your book and millions of others out of their uh, jobs. Um, that was one of the biggest takeaways I had from, from this book, actually. And then the World Trade Agreement obviously contributed to that as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think that the global economy, you know, being part of the global economy is, is good for the United States. And it did grow the economic pie. But it doesn't mean that everybody was better off. And I think if you go back and look at what uh, Clinton promised uh, NAFTA would do, that it would actually increase the number of good paying blue collar jobs, that, that, that did not bear out. Right. We actually lost right. jobs. And and I think probably uh, somewhere around 800,000 jobs is, is maybe – you get different estimates. But then China entering the WTO, which also happened under – because of Clinton, uh, that, that is 32 million, millions of jobs. And, you know, in the aggregate, you can say, well, and, you know, we live in a big country and you're, 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 you average out everybody's, everybody's salary and doesn't, it doesn't seem so impactful. But, but when you zero in on the places that depended on, on one or two factories that were making these things and all of a sudden it's gone, uh, you know, that was the carnage that Trump was talking about. And, and most, uh, if, unless you lived in one of those places, you didn't know what you, you didn't understand. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely learned that was eye opening to me to hear them talk about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's clearly what I had in mind when I said at the top of the show that your book gave me an understanding of the rise of Trump and the phenomenon around Trump much yeah. in a much fuller way than I'd ever thought about it before. And suddenly, you know, as you look at the story of Shannon and John, who voted for Trump in 2016, Wally voted for uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, but you can understand the rage that led them to take the side of a guy who made promises that in most cases for them, he certainly was not able to to uh, keep. But the rage is understandable based on your stories. Right. If you if you think about John, he had been a Democrat. He had been from a long line of Democrats. These were union people. They were. Uh, John used to tell his kids, um, "If a Democrat's in office, old dad's got a job. If a Democrat's out, uh, you know, if a Republican's in there, old dad's out of work." And then you know, and then his factories, the factories start closing and moving away, and he really reevaluates 
he had been such a supporter of Bill Clinton, thought of Bill Clinton as, you know, fighting for the little guy. And that's what the Democrats stood for. And then after, you know, the factories start closing down, he totally has this change of heart. He votes for Obama in 2008 because Obama had promised to renegotiate NAFTA. And then when it didn't happen, he uh, he stops thinking of himself as a Democrat. But he still can't get excited about anybody that Republicans are putting up. Like Mitt Romney was a corporate guy, right? John's not interested in that. John's a militant union guy. And then along comes Donald Trump, who's throwing all this red meat about factories closing. Stuff that Democrats used to say, and frankly, stuff that Bernie Sanders was also saying. So this union actually endorsed Bernie Sanders. And when Sanders didn't win the nomination, a lot of them voted for Trump. You know, it's interesting to me um, to think about the 92 election, the presidential race that Bill Clinton won over George H.W. Bush, with the help of Ross Perot, who siphoned off votes from <clears throat> we most likely from uh, George H.W. Right. Bush. Um, but it was Ross Perot who talked about NAFTA being a giant right. sucking sound that was going to destroy right. jobs. And, and we, he was treated with less than, say, full respect partly because he was a character beyond that. But his predictions sure. about NAFTA bore some fruit. Sure, sure. And I think we should just take a step back and say, like, these people were promised lots more jobs, right? They didn't get, they, that didn't happen. And yet, because the country is being run by people who aren't in the same situation as them, right? Uh, nobody knows. Nobody thinks about it. And so they, they weren't even compensated for their losses. And and I think that that was that there was real there's there's a, a valid economic grievance there that causes people to then say, um, you know, build that wall because, you know, like or, or put tariffs on those goods. They were dying for that. They were waiting for that. And they and it was an unthinkable thing. To do because for you know since for 30 years any president in the White House was you know whatever they promised on the campaign trail when they got into office they actually supported free trade none of them dared to uh, to, to put the brakes on it because it's good for American companies yeah yeah so um, at, we know that um, in the 2020 election you tell us that uh, John voted again for Donald Trump, despite the fact that he had lost his job and it was not, you know, Trump didn't save him uh, the way he thought Trump would. But Shannon takes a completely different turn, and her turn is really interesting. Just tell us just a little bit about what happened to Shannon in 2020. Yeah, so I, I kind of came to think of them as the true bellwethers of American public opinion because, you know, they'd get upset about Trump, like, Kids in cages at the border. That that angered them. And then I said, oh, if Shannon's angry about that, he's going to have to backtrack. And sure enough, he does. Um, but by the time, the beginning of 2020, Shannon is thinking things are going pretty well. The economy is pretty going well. She has a job. Even her son has a job. And so she, she is pretty happy with Trump. And then COVID hits. She loses her factory job. Um, her daughter's by this time now a nurse. And she starts getting scared of COVID. She sees Trump making fun of people wearing masks. She's, you know, she starts to see him as a bully. And then a union organizer comes to her and says, 
let's start protesting Trump at these rallies. She doesn't have anything to do. And so she goes and she gets, she goes uh, way, I, I mean, in the course of maybe three or four months, she completely changes to being uh, a very passionate um, uh, pro-Biden, which, which was something that had never been possible. <laughs> Even the yeah, day she, goes said, to- I, I, she said, I, I'm voting for Harris, not Biden. At first, and then by the end, she's 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 praying for Biden. It was such an interesting thing to watch. She she goes to her first rally of of Trump rally in Des Moines. She gets chills when she sees Air Force One land. I get that. Uh, but then she said that she learned about Trump from her friend from Mike, the guy who got her into these protests. Uh, that what that Trump had bragged about being able to shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose supporters. She said, I must really have been blind. And even John, although he voted for Trump, when he starts hearing uh, after the insurrection and uh, and and starts thinking about Trump talking about the fake election, even he says, what the F are you doing, you idiot? Shut up. It's over. Interesting for him, too. Why are you cry, baby? Right? What? Don't don't be crying about losing the election. That's why we have elections. So, um, yeah. I mean, to me, these are the middle. These are sort of they're they're not. Yes, QAnon is out there, but um, but at the time I was following these people, they weren't they weren't crazy QAnon followers. So these so we're we've, we're down to about the last couple minutes, um, Farah, but. Where where do these I mean, you talk about three very specific people, but there are millions of Americans who lost their jobs and were displaced and weren't sure where to go next job retraining and all that worked for some, not for others. Just in the broadest way possible, where do we stand today on the reemployment of all the people who lost their manufacturing jobs? And oh, by the way, you have about 35 seconds to sum that up. Look, I think, I think things are looking up. Wages are rising. Joe Biden is the most pro-union president we have ever had. And, hmm. and the renegotiation of NAFTA, which was done with cooperation between Democrats and Trump's uh, trade reps, that has, is going to change the game. So I, I actually do think that we are, um, we're getting somewhere and we're starting to pay attention to ordinary people and what matters to them. Globalization is only going to work for America if it works for the working class. And we have to figure out how to get there. And I actually think we're making progress uh, in ways that, um, that we don't often see in the newspaper. Ferris Stockman, I really appreciate your taking the time to join us uh, for the show today. Your book, American Made, is a fascinating look at, at American life through the eyes of three people who struggled, had some triumphs, had tragedies and heartbreaks. Um, and you told me certainly a lot about the country I live in today. So thank you so much for being here for Political Rewind today. It was a pleasure to talk to you. That's it. We're out of time. Yeah, we're out of time for today's show. Of course, we're back again with a new show tomorrow. Uh, In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. 
wear a mask. Omicron is out there and it's looking for us. And if you haven't got your booster shot by now, please go get it. I'll see you all tomorrow.